Hello and welcome to Bread and Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. And I'm Hazel. We're two friends who studied archaeology together and love history. And today we have an extra person. Um, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, my name is Kate. I am an amateur fashion historian and a uh, museum interpreter, which is a fancy way of saying museum tour guide. Um, I uh, can be found on Instagram at Miss underscore Minutia, and I do historical costuming, I research fashion history, and broadly uh, social history of the 19th century. That is like a very, very extensive list of credentials. I'm excited. I was doing my best. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, our credentials are basically, we like it. Well, I mean, we do have archaeology degrees. Well, yeah, but they've not come up much. (laughs) That's true. We kind of, we did that because we liked it and then didn't do anything else. So it's, yeah, it's really cool to have, um, a person who kind of does this day to day as their thing as well. Um, So what got you interested in the 19th century particularly? I'm not really sure. I think it's more of the because I liked it kind of situation. Um, (laughs) I it was I, I kind of grew up surrounded by a bunch of antiques like from my great grandmother's house that were family heirlooms and most of them were a little bit newer but they sort of had that 19th century feel if they weren't actually 19th century. And I was kind of raised on Antiques Roadshow and that's sort of the bulk of what they focus on there, which of course, you know, you can talk about like Eurocentrism and what comes up on shows like that, obviously, but um, that was sort of where it wound up being. And then when I moved to Boston, the museums I ended up working in are primarily um, 19th century house museums. You have a lot of those up here. so. Yeah, that's just kind of where it ended up being. Also, I love bustle dresses, so, like, there's that. <laughs> so, we always start out episodes talking about sort of what we've been working on, sort of making and baking. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Hazel. Uh, sure, I will do a thing. Um, okay, so I finished my pirate shirt, and it's glorious. <laughs> It's it's just so like poofy and like oh man um, I I just I enjoy it very much um, <laughs> it just makes me really confident when I wear it like I'm about to sail off onto the high seas and like raid tax havens or something um, <laughs> it's fantastic Excellent. so yeah I have many more ideas but I still have a whole entire sheep's fleece that I need to do something with um so I think my next thing will be doing something with that so I don't know if I've mentioned this story in the podcast before but um our postman in my village is also a shepherd and I mentioned to him one day that I did spinning and the next week he left an entire sack at my doorstep containing a whole sheep's fleece (laughs) so I, st- I still have that to process and I'm gonna I want to get quite ambitious and if I have enough I'm gonna make myself a, like a coat yeah um yeah what about uh you Liz um I'm halfway through my ridiculous pie cross stitch project <laughs> it is 
a glorious mess, but you can kind of see there's like areas where specific numbers like cluster up together. If if I was in any way a mathematician, it would probably be fascinating, but it's just pretty. And that's oh, okay. okay. I I am enjoying Rainbow Pie very much. That's just a wonderful concept. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am working on an early 1890s winter outfit for an outdoor holiday market event. I'm doing it at one of the museums I work at. Uh, the coat is almost done. I have to do the buttons and the hem, which is more work than sounds like because I like to do my buttonholes by hand. I just feel like it gives me more control. And I'm about to start on a hat, which has a much longer brim in the front than I realized. So elegant baseball cap territory. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. Mm. I, I did my first ever hand-sewn buttonholes a couple of days ago on this shirt that I made. And it's, yeah, it was fun. But like, mm -hmm. God, I can't imagine having to do the amount of them that there are on the Victorian dresses. I, I've done them before. Like I said, it gives a little more control and I find it kind of relaxing because I can just like pop on something on Netflix and just bang out some hands on buttonholes. <laughs> hmm. Okay, so um, this episode is going to be about a particular kind of dye used in the 19th century, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I think uh, a lot of people are familiar with the infamous arsenic green. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, it's, uh, it's been in clickbait videos and listicles the world over because it's one of those things that pop history has become aware of and latched onto. But as pop history tends to do, they didn't really go much deeper. So mm. it's an interesting topic. So... Um, just as a basic overview, uh, arsenic green actually refers to two different kinds of dyes. The first one was called uh, Sheila's green, invented in 1775 by, I might mangle this pronunciation, uh, Carl Wilhelm Schiele. It was more color fast and brighter than earlier green dyes, and part of the reason was that it was full of toxic chemicals, including uh, copper arsenite, which was the arsenic compound that helped give it the color. Um, and if you were wondering, yes, Sheila did know it was toxic. He actually wrote in a letter to a friend something along the lines of, I wonder if I should say something about this. Like, I wonder if this is going to be a problem. <laughs> and then he didn't. Oh. So, uh, well, you know, when there's money to be made. I suppose, yeah. You can't let scruples get in the way. <laughs> oh, of course not. Um, Spirit of the Victorian age. Or even earlier, yeah. I mean, I uh, guess, technically, all of the time. <laughs> It's it's just capitalism. It's capitalism. <laughs> uh, it was improved upon in 1814 with the invention of something that was called either Paris Green, Emerald Green, Vienna Green, or Schweifert Green. So try keeping track of all of those. Uh, a by a pair of dyers in Bavaria named Russ and Stotler. It was even brighter. There was more color variation allowed uh, depending on the grain size of the dye, and it was even more color fast. They finally published the recipe in 1822, which revealed, oops, all arsenic, so to speak. <laughs> um, so basically, arsenic dyes were very popular in the late 18th and the early, mostly early to mid 19th centuries. And the thing of it is, it wasn't just green. 
Um, lots of the new aniline or chemical-based dyes contained toxic chemicals. Mauve was actually another one that was known for um, causing particular amounts of trouble. And interestingly enough, uh, Paris Green was the first widespread uh, chemical insecticide. That's always a good sign. Wow. Yeah, just what you like in your clothing. Uh, starting in the 1880s, people would spread it on, on their crops to, um, to get rid of insects. Oh, just as it was, like, the dye, the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it was, I think wow. it was the, yeah, the powdered. You can find advertisements for it, for, like, Paris Green um, insecticide or, uh, like, weed killer, things like that. I guess you probably don't have to worry about moths if your clothes are dried are dyed with insecticide. Sure. That would be a good question. I would love to do like a study on that or something. <laughs> so you could find arsenic green uh, pretty much in anything. The most popular image nowadays is like the green ball gown, like the fatal ball gown, fatal vanity, and I'll get into that later. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was in candles, it was in toys, it was in upholstery and garment fabric, especially in uh, silk foliage, so like silk leaves and flowers. Um, even candy, actually, colored candies and desserts. That doesn't sound like a good idea. <laughs> no, if you use small <laughs> enough amounts, you would probably be okay. Emphasis on probably. And it was very different for children and adults. Um... There were news stories, including one 1840 Christmas party in London, of course, everyone's unnamed because it was society people, where the hosts burned uh, green and gold candles and a bunch of children died from the arsenic fumes. Oh my gosh. Ow. Again, totally, like, nobody's named, so you can't really confirm how much of that was true, so grain of salt and all that, but mm. um, there was a danger. And of course, wallpaper was probably the biggest culprit because... Uh, the pigment could flake off or it could outgas under warmer, damp conditions. Okay. So was there any kind of um, like public concern about this at all? There actually was. Um, there was a very interesting article published in 1861 where a um, silk flower maker named Matilda, again, another name I'm probably going to butcher, Matilda, Matilda uh, Scheurer. She Great was a 19-year-old. It's a wonderful name. She was a 19-year-old uh, silk flower maker, and she died on November 20th, 1861. I'm not sure how the newspapers got a hold of the story, but they, they, uh, they published typically lurid accounts of her dying and um, just the horrible agonies she went through as she died of severe arsenic poisoning. And as a result, that whole thing became sort of a um, cause celebre, if you will, for upper-class women who uh, ran organizations like the Ladies Sanitary Association dedicated to various social causes. So um, Punch, pub the magazine Punch published an article called Pretty Poison Reeves with a quote that said, under such circumstances as these, death is evidently about as accidental as it is when resulting from a railway collision occasioned by arrangements known to be faulty. So basically, even though Matilda's death was ruled accidental, everyone was sort of not buying that. Um, one lady named Miss Nicholson went around and visited other silk flower workshops all over London and found just absolutely wretched working conditions with these young girls and teenagers um, working with, you know, um, you know, content warning, semi-graphic medical descriptions ahead, uh, like sores on their hands, bloody bandages. Some had to just refuse to work because they couldn't take it anymore. 
and all they knew was that the dye gave them, quote, a dreadful cold, unquote. Pretty dreadful cold. <laughs> yeah, it, absolutely. Yeah, I'm just finding it interesting how people definitely knew, because I was listening to... Um, I was listening to a podcast, um, Things in Jars, hit us up. Um, they were talking about this woman who um, arsenic murdered some family members and blamed it on the wallpaper, saying obviously they just inhaled it. That's why there was arsenic in their stomachs. I actually, I didn't come across that. I just find it interesting it being that well known that you can use it as a defense in a murder trial and all of these things coming out about the working conditions and people still using it it really was yeah it was um it was interesting especially because after all these things came out about the working conditions and that wasn't the first time there was an 1859 study of workshops in france which actually resulted in um french and german governments banning the pigments before the concern had even been raised to that level in in britain and in america um, but the popular press sort of, from what I found, and again, my research was not exhaustive by any means, they sort of chose to focus more on the idea of the careless, wealthy young lady who goes to a ball in an arsenic-dyed gown and is dropping her suitors like flies because her dress is outgassing arsenic pigments. So it's kind of interesting to me that the whistleblowers were upper-class women and the people who were suffering the most were these working girls and teenagers. And yet the popular press chose to turn it into a thing of like, oh, you know, woman's fatal vanity and, and the effect on others around her, not even the wearer of the dress herself. I was going to say, mm. like, where's mm. the concern for this lady who's wearing the, the arsenic dress? Um, it's, so it's nothing to do with wealthy newspaper owners who probably... <laughs> maybe also had some money invested in these dyes, as a guess. Um, the interesting thing about looking at where the money's coming from is more in the case of um, William Morris, the wallpaper designer, uh, who actually, despite campaigning for better conditions for some workers, he inherited stock in an arsenic mine. So he wow. famously, yeah, he famously called the concern over arsenic dye witch fever, and um, actively campaigned to get people to not believe in it. Really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's super interesting to know because I recently got quite interested in in uh, the life of William Morris and was reading around mm -hmm. it a bit. And um, I guess that's one of the things they don't tend to tell you. Well, not I William mean, Morris is like a hero of like British art. Yeah, he's kind of held up as well as, mm. you know, this person who um fought for art for the masses and and better working conditions and things. So it turns out he was evil. Interesting <laughs> way that people in history can be like really amazing socially on one axis and then you look at something else and there's a clear sort of conflict of interest because people are complicated. Sure. Um, yeah. And of course, that's not to say consumers didn't suffer from the arsenic poisoning. There was, just to go off a laundry list, there was an 1848 article in The Lancet, a lot of these come from The Lancet, about a brother and sister who got sick after licking a toy rabbit their mother gave them. I guess it was a green rabbit or a rabbit with 
green elements, or maybe another color of dye. Um, 1858, a three-year-old boy died after eating fallen flakes of wallpaper pigment. Um, 1862, Dr. Thomas Orton was called to a family's house when everyone, including their pet parrot, began to get sick after they hung new wallpaper with a really bright pigment to it. Um... And then one of the few American examples I found was in 1861 uh, in the Boston Medical and Surgical Journal, right here in my hometown, um, of a boy made sick from sucking on a green concert ticket. Wow. So, uh, like, even that little amount. Mm-hmm. It was, it was worse with children because adults can metabolize more arsenic safely, um, but obviously children can't handle the same dosage so to speak mm. mm-hmm. and interestingly in terms of the whole um green ball gown thing which is still what you see in modern like depictions and museum exhibits and things like that um clothing actually wasn't the worst offender because you're the, cl- the clothing isn't really touching your body especially if you're a woman uh you have like five layers of underwear between your outer dress and um your actual skin. So the most concern with clothing that you see is from things like gloves and stockings that are actually um, in contact with your body. There was one account of um, uh, poisonous socks was the title of the article in the Lancet in 1868, where Mr. Weber brought some harmful dyes to the attention of his local alderman in, uh, in a council meeting or something. And there was a dancer at the Drury Lane theater who suffered a rash on one foot where she was wearing a bright red stocking and they knew it was from the stocking because the other foot had a white stocking on during the performance. So you get more issues where the clothing actually comes into contact. But again, it's only a rash. You're not really dying from wearing arsenic dyed clothing. Okay. So it's the, when people are actually ingesting it. Mm-hmm. Or breathing it in. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So with things like wallpaper, it's the, like the fumes or the particles yeah yeah or like flakes of paint that fall off the wall with wear there's some theory that it might have contributed to napoleon bonaparte's death um because something about i I forget when the actual study was done um something about his tissues they maybe did a test of some of his remains and the tissues contained really really unusually high levels of arsenic um so there was a theory that the wallpaper where he was you know, on the island, outgassed in the damp and gave him slow arsenic poisoning. Uh, but of course, you know, there could be other explanations. Arsenic was also used as a medicine in some cases. Um, interestingly, still used in some medicines today in very, very small quantities. So mm-hmm. sort of interesting brush with fame there for the, the arsenic green poisoning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if there was um, any effort, like, you know, with how um, they remove asbestos from houses today and, you know, there's whole industries of, like, people who are trained in removing asbestos. And I know that because uh, I used to work um, transcribing and Mm -hmm. one of the things I had to transcribe was a podcast about asbestos removal. (laughs) It was not the most interesting two hours I've ever had but um, very necessary certainly um and so yeah I, w- I wonder if there was um 
what it was like for people in rented accommodation that might have had this and whether um, there was a, a push to remove it or not. I don't know for sure about that. I do know that after a certain point, manufacturers began advertising uh, wallpaper in particular as arsenic free. So you can find um, ads from mostly the 1870s into the 80s and beyond of um, the, these beautiful wallpaper images and then in big letters along with like vibrant colors and new designs things like arsenic free oh wow uh, so i don't know whether there was necessarily much of a removal push but there was certainly a uh, a push among manufacturers to respond to consumer demands that their wallpaper not contain you know massive levels of lethal poison <laughs> the public is so picky yeah it is pretty <laughs> Um, and of course, new dyes were found as well that had other ways of being color fast without um, quite the same level of harmful chemicals. And some people still used older forms of dye, too. There's this misconception that if you look at any green Victorian um, item in general, but again, this usually gets applied to upper class women's dresses, which is a really interesting prejudice, um, that you can tell that it has arsenic dye because of the shade of green or just if it's green in general. And that's really really not true um even less so with you know wallpaper so i imagine if you did live in rented accommodations um you might be wary of green wallpaper if you knew about it um or you know maybe you just find yourself coming down with some symptoms and not really knowing why okay so it's it's kind of interesting um that People would pick out this, I mean, although it, it was absolutely right that it's extremely toxic. Um, it's interesting that there was all this focus on this one rather than, um, you know, also I'm sure there were a lot of other dyes that were quite toxic um, yeah, I, at the time and, and still are. Hmm. And I, so I suppose that would have had something to do with the um, society lady vanity thing. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting, especially because um, even at the time, green seems to have been latched onto. Um, despite, as I said, like Mauve enjoyed a brief uh, period when that was known in 19th century popular press as the toxic dye, the color to watch out for. Um, but green seemed to be latched onto, and I have to wonder if it had to do with all the studies done into um, the silk flower workshops because the primary issue there was the green. They used a lot of it because you're replicating leaves and stems and things like that. Um, and there were some um, images, some drawings, color drawings actually published with the 1859 French study um, that have these very uh, affecting visuals of like hands with bleeding sores that are tinged green from the dye and green under fingernails and things like that. So I have to wonder if maybe the green just had better publicity, um, that it just became sort of the better known color, even though other dyes, like the story with the dancer, her stocking was red, not green, mm -hmm. and that still caused, you know, skin irritation. So maybe it's just good publicity. Would the red and purple dyes have been arsenic-based as well? Because I was just wondering, because there was definitely a period where arsenic was sort of big in the public imagination because of all of the sort of the penny dreadfuls and things and calling arsenic inheritance powder because you use it to knock off your wealthy relatives. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Yeah, um, it's interesting. Other dyes did contain arsenic. Yeah, they did contain arsenic and or other equally harmful chemicals. Um, so yeah, I suppose it's just, you know, like I said, dumb luck that green was what was seized on. But um, yeah, I, I really am interested in that uh, that green wallpaper case with um, with the woman, oh, sorry, the woman who um, poisoned her family and then blamed it on the wallpaper. I actually didn't find that. And that sounds really fascinating. I'll I'll send you a link to the podcast episode. Please do, yeah, yeah. That would I wonder neat. if um, that kind of thing was inspired by all the press coverage. Oh, probably. I mean, that... Like this, this is a, an excuse I can use. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that might definitely have been where you got the idea to 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 bump off your family and blame it on the wallpaper. Um, I. <laughs> Do you want to touch again on the whole feminine vanity thing? Just because I found a really interesting later urban legend that kind of plays into this whole like poison gown, careless woman, female vanity type of situation. Um, Because first of all, it's putting the focus on individual responsibility as opposed to manufacturer um, oversight, which may sound a little familiar to anyone, you know, living in this time of climate change. Um, Where have we heard that before? (laughs) But also, there's a later urban legend first recorded in the 1930s about a girl who goes to a dance in either a secondhand gown or a gown from, like, an unscrupulous department store and then dies of formaldehyde poisoning from sweating in the dress because, oops, it actually came off a dead person. Um, And some of these have, like, a ghost element. The earliest recorded versions were also racist because they pointed out that the original owner was black, specifically, and so there's an element of like, oh, well, you know, um, someone getting above her station, so to speak, and then dying and being a vengeful spirit. Um, but that really reminded me of the idea of sort of the, the arsenic bell in the 1860s spreading the poison around her and hurting others, although now it's been shifted. So that the punishment for the vanity is not on other people, but on the woman herself. That's quite interesting, actually, because the the whole poison dress thing is actually quite an old um, device. Um, mm. There's, I mean, it goes back to some type, like some of the Icelandic sagas or the Viking sagas have. Um, like, I think there's one I can't remember off the top of my head the name of it because it is <laughs> in Old Norse. But um, there's a story about a woman who wants her son to inherit. Um, her husband's lands and not her stepson and so she makes a shirt for the stepson and um weaves into it all these kind of evil curses and then um of of course her own son accidentally puts it on and dies (laughs) but there's there's also things about um you know jealous jilted lovers um making or gifting a dress to um the husband's new wife or poisoning the dress so that when she puts it on she graphically dies at the wedding mm-hmm. um so sort of, yeah right i think yeah yeah that whole kind of poison clothing poison dress is is quite a evocative image mm-hmm. it really is it really is and there was an exhibit at the um bata shoe museums in uh, canada some years back where it was all about arsenic green dyed clothing or well okay it was about um sort of fatal clothing or harmful clothing and they included a bunch of arsenic dyed things from their collection and they actually did 
the only way to tell if something is dyed with arsenic. So they went through their collection and um, chemically tested pretty much everything green because green was the best known, but they did admit that it was other colors too. Um, and their the opening room of the display had a skeleton wearing an arsenic dyed ball gown in the display case. And it harkened back to an image in Punch when there was that first scandal over the um, the, the dye workers or the uh, silk flower workers, um, where they actually had a comic called The Arsenic Waltz, which showed a female, ske- female skeleton, in quotes, um, in a ball gown, and then a male skeleton in the suit sort of bowing and offering his hand to her. So it is. It's a very evocative image. Mm, I guess that kind of poison green thing as well like green is associated with that yeah green with envy or mm-hmm. like the classic bottle of poison <laughs> it's always got green liquid in yeah disney villains are always have green don't they it's like yeah. all the evil magic is green mm-hmm. yeah and it's interesting because so much of the silk flower thing was designed to create that feeling of like nature and pastoral and goodness and yet that wound up being one of the primary avenues for the toxic dye. Oh, gosh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I guess there's always that, um, you know, selling something on the basis of nature or it looks natural or it's supposed to be natural and it's not necessarily, I mean, in terms of dyes, um, I um, I hear a lot about natural dyes you know being um more sustainable or like better than um than synthetic dyes which uh, i mean i'm not an expert on this um they may well be certainly in some respects they probably are um but then they um you know they weren't necessarily perfectly um good on the environment. I mean, certainly in the quantities that they were being produced um, at certain times in history, um, it could cause environmental damage and there are chemicals used with them. So I guess the most well-known one is alum. Um, mm. And again, I'm not an expert. I don't know whether or not that's harmful, but um, you know, they, they did use chemicals to bind these things. We learned that um, some kinds of green dye apparently still can't be recycled or composted even now. Oh, um, they're they're not likely to give you a rash or kill you in your paint or wallpaper, but apparently it's still a, a difficult color to create in a way that's completely safe in all respects. So, yeah, that was interesting. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I guess you don't really think about the dye um, affecting the compostability or the life of an item that much i suppose because there's just such a variety available to us today and we we just don't think about it yeah yeah it's not something often considered i did also want to mention that um i have touched many green victorian things with my bare hands um i used to work for an antique doll dealer in new york city and um i have not yet experienced rashes or skin irritation um, there was one doll dress I encountered once where that had green spots that we all kind of, you know, speculated. And I felt like my hands itched a little after I touched it, but that also could have been psychosomatic because there wasn't any redness or rash or anything, which I think just goes to show that it might be 
I don't want to say less common than people think, but it's definitely not the situation you expect where it's like any green Victorian dress is lethal and it's going to kill you and give you arsenic poisoning. That's not really the situation. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you know how long it can, well, whether or not it has like an expiry date, is it, would, would these things still be as potent as they were for people handling them today? Very interesting question. Um, I know the chemical studies about it, as far as I know, kind of tapered off in popularity. Um, so there were those first few studies in the mid-19th century. The Ladies Sanitary Association actually sent off some silk to, uh, to be studied when they were doing their whole inquest into the, um, the silk flower workshops. And there was another study done in the 1890s, but it was using then contemporary fabric. Um, there was certainly still enough to be detected by researchers like those at the Batashu Museum or in the Hidden Killers show where they did the, uh, the wallpaper sample book test. Um, I don't know. You would have to... I feel like you would have to have taken like test results from a textile originally and then have the same textile and test it now. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could do, you could dye something with arsenic dye for, for scientific purposes. And then have your, your grandchildren come back and test it 100 years later. And see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. All they said about the, uh, the, to- the current toxicity of the dresses at the Badashu Museum, one of the curators said, quote, we've been advised not to lick it, unquote. So Amazing. That covers a lot of things. <laughs> it does. Uh, I, I also find it interesting that with the um, the silk flower workshop thing, which I I didn't know before, um, but that um, you know that sparked off all this interest in in the working conditions. Like people, like people were just kind of you know having these these lovely silk flowers on their clothing um, and not really thinking about it, and then all this came out and. <laughs> People were collectively like, oh, no, what? There's bad working conditions. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's the kind of thing that perhaps they were aware of obliquely before, but didn't really think about. Um, and, and someone had to bring it to their attention. I, I find it really interesting that France and Germany responded by being like, oh, well, we can't have this and banning the dyes. I'm not sure it was actually ever banned in the UK. Just sort of an agreement not to. Mm-hmm. I, I can't find any dates of banning in the UK or here in America. So it's entirely possible that it was never banned in those places. Now, I could be wrong. I could be missing something and it could have been banned. But it might have just been that, you know, consumer pressure and technology improvements um, sort of phased it out. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us. That's that was fascinating. Yeah, Thank you for having me. Really interesting, it's interesting and slightly creepy journey into the textile past. Mm-hmm. It was really interesting to research about. I had done some looking into it before, but never um, in the kind of depth where I would actually like record names and dates of my sources and things like that. So, thank you for having me, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to look into it more. Hello, I'm Mod Paper from Probably Bad RPG Ideas, and we have a podcast. 
If you'd like to hear RPG advice on how to use assorted incredibly bad ideas as actual ideas in an actual game, then listen to the Probably Bad podcast, available on pretty much every podcatcher. And remember to have a probably bad day. So before we go into local larder, um, this episode was actually requested by one of our patrons. Um, so if if you want to request an episode yourself, you can email breadandthreadpodcast at gmail.com. And our Patreon is just Bread and Thread. We have exclusive recipes and a Discord server. Um, so now that I have plugged that, would you like to know about fish and chips? Very much. Absolutely. <laughs> so, fish and chips is known as, it's sort of one of the quintessential British foods. Yeah. No part of it is British. <laughs> Honestly, that doesn't surprise me at this point. Well, no. Mm-hmm. Um, so we think that the the sort of battered fish itself um, probably comes from um, either Dutch or Iberian uh, Jewish communities. Find it interesting that it's one of those two because they don't really touch. Um, Although there is, there was a lot of sort of conflict between Spain and the Netherlands at various points, so maybe that's got something to do with the confusion. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of basically battering and frying fish on the Friday evening so that you can eat it during the Sabbath without having to cook, and then that gets combined with the idea of chips. Yeah, sounds really um, useful. So it made its way to Britain somewhere in probably the 1860s, although fried fish itself and chips themselves are mentioned separately in various Charles Dickens books, including Oliver Twist, which is 1830s. Um, But there is strong debate about whether the first chippy, that is a place selling fish and chips specifically, was in London or Mossley, which is now part of Greater Manchester. <laughs> I, imagine, <laughs> I imagine there will continue to be strong debate about that for years to come. <laughs> oh, for sure. You've got, you've got the North versus London. It's not going to go away. <laughs> Um, but it basically became this stock working class meal um, during that in that industrial period because there was suddenly industrial fishing. Mm-hmm. So fish is just becomes accessible to working class people, and it's basically the first takeaway meal as opposed to we've talked about before sort of street food snacks mm-hmm. but this is somewhere you can go in and you get you get a, a big lump of tasty stodge 
<laughs> to get you through your terrible life for another day. It is. I mean, it still is like one of the only things where you can get like proper value for money. Like oh, you sure. get a good amount of chips. Ideal. I'm just used to that as sort of like authentic British pub food here in the States where you have like a pub that has like um like union flag garlands and like probably some model of the TARDIS somewhere. <laughs> Not a model. Just like every pub. Absolutely. Authentic British pub, clearly. <laughs> um so yeah, a lot of um Chippies now are actually combination fish and chips and Chinese food, which I find interesting because you've got this sort of Chinese immigrants in relatively poor areas basically combining um, sort of their cuisines with what is already established working class British cuisines in one shop. Yeah, I think actually you can probably you can get at least chips from pretty much every takeaway. I think. Yeah, so I know there's a lot of um, lot of sort of curry places you can get half and half. Oh yeah, it's half a portion of rice and half a portion of chips. Oh, interesting. <laughs> um, so a couple of of fun fish and chips facts. There is exactly one chip shop on Gibraltar and I I looked at its Facebook page and it has a lot of reviews that are basically this is the best chippy in Gibraltar which <laughs> I love I guess by default they're not wrong <laughs> it's, it's called Roy's Fish and Chips and yeah I just they're hanging in there that's excellent I love chip shot names as well yeah. like some of them are like like the one in where I live is called the Swan, and then you get some that are just like Roy's chips. I enjoy the ones with pun names. So there's one, there's a train station near my parents' house that has a chip shop in it. It's called the Place Station, like PlayStation. Oh, <laughs> that's terrible! I love it. Oh, that's horrible. <laughs> Perfect. Um, it was one of the few foods not subject to rationing. Oh. Because Churchill thought that it would basically keep the working class going. Um, it's also mentioned in the Road to Wigan Pier as a panacea to the working classes. I mean, I don't agree with everything in the Road to Wigan Pier, but that's not wrong. <laughs> But a very important question for you, Kate, is in the places near you that do fish and chips, can you get scraps? Never tried. Uh, that's the scraps of fried batter, right? Yeah. Ah, yes. I, I, I have been informed by my British friends. Um, <laughs> I, I've never tried. Um, I, I don't know that anyone would try here. I, I think most Americans are kind of foreign to the idea. So if you suggested it, they would probably say, so you go around the back of the restaurant 
because you'd have to go around the back of the restaurant because most of the places that do it here aren't like counter service. They're like sit down restaurants, even if they're just like diners. Um, so you'd have to go around to the back and be like, hi, can I have your your uh, bits of fried batter? I don't know. Even here in New England, where there's so much like cultural overlap, I feel like you would just get looked at funny. Um, maybe I'm totally wrong. Like American people listening, let me know if you've ever done this or, or comment on the Twitter if you've ever done this. And um, I will be thoroughly corrected. But I don't think it's part of the culture here. It's interesting because the thing is, when I was a kid living up near Newcastle, I used to be able to get them for free. And I don't know if it's time or geography, but now places charge you for them. Like 50 50 whole English pence. (laughs) <laughs> for a bag of batter scraps it's it's a scandal wow i honestly like i think it might be more of a northern thing perhaps because i and you know this is <laughs> admitting something but i had never heard of scraps until like maybe last year um like not even when you lived in york you didn't come across it no i just never heard of it um, I guess I didn't branch out enough in my fish and chip culinary journey, but um, like I, I mean, I remember bullying you into trying chips and gravy. So yeah, that was that was worth it. Um, like <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I just hadn't ever heard of it. Like it's not on the menus or anything down here, but I don't know. Maybe if you asked, they would give it to you. But um, it's it's not like a thing, or at least not that I know of. Um, okay, so I, I have one more bit of trivia about fish and chips. So Hazel will be well aware that there is a lot of debate about what, if any, wet substances you have with your fish and chips. You can have gravy, mushy peas, just vinegar. Uh, if you go to a Chinese chippy, you can get Chinese curry on your fish and chips. Isn't that also a Welsh thing, curry sauce? Um, I don't know if it's a Welsh thing or if it's just a thing that you can get in Wales. Because like I say, it's a lot of the combination Chinese and chippy places do it. Although some, like I've been to just, just chippies that do have like a thing of curry sauce in the back if you really want it. (laughs) I want a half and it gets refreshed. Um, but apparently around Edinburgh, there's a substance called chippy sauce. It is a combination of brown sauce and vinegar. Which, like, I, I would try, I think. What's the consistency? I think it depends on that. I cannot find what the consistency is. What What I found is mostly just... That it's those two things and then pictures of chips with a brown substance on them. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how I feel about that. So yeah, that is a, a brief guide to fish and chips. Good to know. Oh no, I want fish and chips. Yeah, me too. I've, Honestly, I've, just had, I've just had food and now I want fish and chips. <laughs> I, uh, I have to actually go out of my way to get fish and chips. How far? 
like to a sit down restaurant. Oh, well, I can't right now because the restaurants are mostly closed. Um, it would have to be to a sit down restaurant that does fish and chips because um, chip shops aren't really a thing here. So you'll have to make I, your own. I will. I will. I'll have to learn. And, uh, I did make my own. I did try to do that once um, when I was living in Vietnam. It, I tried to make it on my birthday for my friends, um, and the kitchen floor was covered in grease for the next week. <laughs> it was, it's quite. Uh, if you're an amateur fish and chip maker, it's it's quite tricky to manage. No. <laughs> So yeah, um, so like I said, um, we have an email and a Patreon, and um, we're also on Twitter, at Bread and Thread, if you want to just keep up with what we're doing and see the hints that I keep insisting on posting about what the next episode's going to be on. They're fun. <laughs> Thank you for listening, and we will be back soon.